Governor J.B. Prisker signs a bill to abolish cash bail in Illinois. Central Illinois Children's Museums are struggling during the pandemic. Decatur Reverend hosts panel to address recent string of violence. More on these stories. I'm Kelsey Watsonauer. I'm Sierra Henry. I'm Brendan Moore. And this is Lee Enterprises Long Story Short. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Long Story Short, where we recap Central Illinois news from Lee Enterprises journalists. Oh my gosh, how the heck is it March already? I feel like it's crazy how fast this time has gone by. Uh, But before we begin, I want to introduce a very special guest visiting from Springfield, Brendan Moore. Brendan is our Decatur City government reporter and state house reporter, and you might have read some of his hot columns this week on U.S. Representative Mary Miller and her husband, Chris. Uh, So Brendan, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are as a person and what you do, and um, maybe a little bit about your role with Lee Enterprises and how you came to like be hired here. Thanks for having me on, Sierra and Kelsey. Uh, like you said, I'm the government reporter for Lee Enterprises. Uh, I do uh, Illinois state government, and I also do some uh, local government in Decatur and Macon County. Uh, so I was hired in January, so I'm still pretty new, but uh, I have kind of a background in uh, government reporting. I was in the public affairs reporting program at the University of Illinois Springfield, where uh, I interned in the state house with the State Journal Register. They uh, hired me on afterwards, uh, and I spent uh, about three years there. And I covered uh, state government, city government, local business, a little bit of everything under the sun. But I'm really excited to be part of the Lee family now and uh, covering stories under the dome again and, uh, and out in Decatur. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. Um, so Sierra asked the hard-hitting, tell me about yourself questions. I have a sillier nonsense question. Uh, what's the what's the best place to eat in Springfield since you've been there for so long? Springfield's a great food town, uh, so that's a, that's a hard question. But uh, I'm, I'm a big uh, craft beer guy, and so Springfield has about six or seven craft breweries now. Uh, one I really like is Ingrained, uh, so they have their own beer and they have really good food. And Springfield, I should also mention, is known for a few things on the on the food standpoint. It had the first uh, the first drive-through in America is in Springfield at the old Maid Right, and uh, our famous dish is the horseshoe, which yeah, which disgusting and great. For any for anybody that doesn't know, it's a piece of meat, usually hamburger. Open face sandwich. Okay, I can't explain it. Just- <laughs> <laughs> open face sandwich with it's, it's, smothered in cheese and fries. Yes, it's an open face sandwich smothered with cheese and fries uh, in in your meat of choice. Uh, it's a heart attack on a plate, but it's really yummy. It's kind of like uh, an American poutine with a burger inside. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So before we get started with local government, Brendan is going to give us a quick synopsis of his column this week. Um, Brendan, who is U.S. Representative Mary Miller and what was your column about this week? Mary Miller is the newly elected representative for the 15th Congressional District in Illinois, which is southeast Illinois, uh, basically the Wabash Valley, uh, Effingham, and it goes all the way down to southern Illinois, uh, the Kentucky line. It's the most conservative district in the state, easily, and Mary Miller's politics reflect that. Uh, She would probably consider a member of the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus of the House, uh, very conservative. And 
she's only been a member of Congress for oh, about three months now, and she's already been uh, subject to a lot of state and national headlines. Uh, before I go further, I should also mention that her husband, Chris, is an Illinois state representative uh, who is just as conservative as she is, and he's also been embroiled in some, some news lately. So my column is just kind of highlighting some of the, the, the news that they've made since, since she's been sworn in. Uh, so uh, days after she was sworn in, uh, she got in trouble for invoking Hitler in a uh, when she was speaking at a pro-Trump rally outside of the Capitol. Uh, she apologized for that. But then a day later, uh, and this was just revealed in reporting last week, uh, her husband's truck was seen right by the Capitol, and it had a decal on the back that uh, was the decal of a far-right organization, uh, militia group that was allegedly involved with the uh, Capitol insurrection on January 6th. Uh, He has denied any involvement with the group. He just said it's a cool decal, but uh, there have been calls for investigations uh, into into his ties to that group and possible ties and uh, uh, also his maybe possible role in the insurrection itself. Uh, So that's moving through the Illinois House right now. Uh, And then uh, it's kind of long-winded, but then Mary Miller also introduced her first bill in, as a member of Congress last week, which would basically police uh, which bathrooms you can use and what sports teams you can play on in school. Basically, it would say you have to you know, use the bathroom of your biological sex. It's targeting uh, uh, transgender folks. And uh, he has 22 co-sponsors already. One of them is the controversial Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, uh, which kind of tells you where Mary Miller's politics lie. So anyways, long story short, my column just kind of highlights all the news they're making and kind of alludes to the fact that they're not going away. Uh, They're going to be, you know, Chris Miller's in the super minority in the House of Representatives in Illinois, Mary Miller's in the minority in Congress, but they're going to be very loud and vocal about their positions and they're going to be probably be around uh, even if, uh, no matter what happens with redistricting in, in a couple of years or this year. Um, because they have a following, and uh, you know, we uh, we'll just have to see where 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 that takes them. Brennan's column was really well written. I enjoyed reading it, and I think a lot of our readers have also. So if you haven't gotten a chance to check it out, head on over to any of our three websites. I think it was posted at panagraph.com, herald-review.com, and jg-tc.com. So you can check any of those three websites out and uh, read this column. Well, now we're going to jump into some state and local government news and sierra tell me what's going on with children's museums in central illinois well thank you so much for asking brendan this was kind of a really uh, huge issue that i kind of found like last week uh, central illinois children's museums have been closed for the better part of the year pretty much since the pandemic started and Central Illinois museums, or I guess I would say uh, children's museums that are ran by municipalities or park districts, are unable to apply for BIG grants, the business interruption grants, or personal paycheck protection loans to help their employees. So they've also taken a huge revenue loss. What's really difficult for these museums is that the Restore Illinois guidelines under phase four allows museums to reopen at 25% capacity, 
but hands-on exhibits must be closed or modified. Uh, many of the museum's directors that I spoke with have said that this really doesn't allow any leeway for children's museums, which are almost certainly 100% hands-on. So they're kind of at a loss for what to do. Some um, Central Illinois lawmakers have sent a letter to Governor J.B. Pritzker, that's Senator Jason Berrickman and Dave Kohler and Representative Kelly Burke, and they're pretty much asking the governor to consider uh, changing the guidelines or offering a path for children's museums to reopen. So we'll be we'll continue following this issue pretty closely. And I think Decatur has a children's museum and Normal has a children's museum. And both of them were hit pretty hard. So if you want to read more, uh, check my story out at panandgraph.com. Uh, and now Kelsey's going to tell us about the Bloomington and Normal Merrill candidate debates that happened this week, the forums, and everything that you need to know about the April 6th election. Well, maybe not everything, but at least what happened this week. Mayoral candidates from Bloomington and Normal outlined their goals and ambitions during a couple of forums this week. On Tuesday, three candidates running for Bloomington mayor, Jackie Gunderson, Mboka, Mwilambwe, and Mike Straza spoke during the first Bloomington mayoral debate hosted by WGLT. And on Thursday, listeners heard from normal mayoral, mayoral candidate Mark Tiratelli and Republican candidates for several normal township races during the candidate forum hosted by the McLean County Republicans. To read more about what the candidates had to say, head on over to panograph.com and read Tim Eggert and Sierra Henry's reports. We plan to cover several of these candidate forums over the next month ahead of the April 6th election, including some hosted by Panograph Media, so be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe at panograph.com to keep up with all the latest election coverage. Uh, So what's going on in Decatur City government? Brendan, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, there are a few things going on in Decatur City government. One thing I'll just mention off the top is that we also have an election coming up in Decatur. We got uh, we just had a primary election, actually. Uh, we had 12 candidates running for three seats on the Decatur City Council, uh, the seven-person city council. And uh, it was whittled down to six, so now we have six candidates going for those three seats, and it's going to be in April. And uh, we have a debate next week on Wednesday, uh, and uh, there will be more about that on herald-review.com. Um, so just foreshadowing that a little bit. This week, the city of Decatur also ended its voluntary water conservation measures. Uh, they had been in place the past three months because water levels in Lake Decatur were getting a bit low, and uh, there was not a whole lot of rainfall or uh, precipitation of any sorts for uh, a few months at the end of 2020. But uh, moderate levels of precipitation uh, over the past couple of months uh, has helped uh, increase the water levels, and the city's confident that it's going to be one. The lake's going to be 100% full by May, uh, as it has been every year for the past hundred years. We also have a few stories coming out of Mattoon Charleston this week. First, the Charleston and Mattoon Chamber of Commerce executive boards are considering a potential merger, which board members hope could be an opportunity to expand their networks of business contacts and to provide economies of scale. The Mattoon City Council also heard an update from its public works department that crews successfully repaired a Tuesday night sinkhole that formed on the railroad tracks. Crews said the sinkhole appeared due to a sanitary sewer pipe failing along the Canadian National Railway line in Mattoon, which was discovered around 2 p.m. Monday. The repair was completed around 3 a.m. Tuesday and train traffic has resumed. 
Uh, for more on those stories, check out Dave Fope and Rob Stroud's report on the Mattoon Charleston Chamber of Commerce and uh, Rob Stroud's report on the Mattoon City Council meeting at jg-tc.com. And now for some education news. So Kelsey, take it away. Okay, so Monday, the Illinois Association of Regional Superintendents of Schools released its 2020 Illinois Educator Shortage Study, which showed 77% of the 591 responding districts have a teacher shortage problem. Now, this shortage is not new to the state, nor really the country. It's been trending since long before I started reporting education. So this week, all three of our papers worked with Capital News Illinois on a story about how the shortage has affected our area. Lenore Sabota, Lindsay Jones, and I spoke with district officials in Bloomington Normal, as well as our regional superintendent and folks from Illinois State University's education program, which applies the area with many of its newest teachers. Valerie Wells talked to district officials from Warrensburg-Latham, Argenta oriana and other districts around the Decatur area, including Decatur itself. And Rob Stroud reached out to superintendents at Charleston and Mattoon schools, as well as a few other Coles County districts. So if you want to read more, you can find a ton of reporting on this, including strategies for combating the teacher shortage at panagraph.com, herald-review.com, or jg-tc.com, depending on what you're looking for. And not to like toot my own horn since I was a part of this, but this story is a really great example of how important collaboration has become in our newsrooms, not only for the reporters from our three papers, but also leaning on the work of reporters at Capital News Illinois in Springfield, which in this case I believe was Grace Barbic. And of course, our Illinois editor, Chris Coates, who coordinates all of our reporting, pulls it all together, makes sure it makes sense, and highlights what's most valuable to readers in each of our coverage areas. So kudos to us. (laughs) Uh, Now, Sarah, why don't you take us down to uh, Charleston? Okay, on a slightly different note, uh, in higher education, Eastern Illinois University officials have said that an email containing personal information of about 1,400 EIU students was mistakenly sent to an unknown number of people this week, Dave Fopay reported Friday. The email sent on Wednesday reportedly sought peer mentors to provide support to other students and was sent by the university's executive director of inclusion and academic engagement, Mona Davenport. More on this developing story at jg-tc.com. Now Vernon's going to close out the education news with uh, some stuff coming out of Decatur. The conversation surrounding the recruitment of minority teachers is continuing at Decatur schools. The district's resolution on racism includes the goal to increase the number of minority teachers and administrators. However, despite a student population that's more than 50% black, the teaching staff is 92% white. Herald and Review reporter Valerie Wells spoke with district administrators, local leaders in the black community, including Janelle Norman, president of the Decatur and AACP branch, as well as students, educators, and local universities about how to address the shortage of teachers who are representative of their students in Decatur. To read the full story from Valerie, go to herald-review.com. And now I believe we're going to go over to sports. Seven months after the fall season was canceled, area high school football has returned to the field starting Wednesday afternoon for its first March practice. Football is just one sport of many that face a season cancellation because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but area high school coaches and players were excited to get started again. Panagraph's Jim Benson was out on the fields this week to talk to players and coaches about the season getting started, so if you want to read more and see how the team's schedules are lining up, be sure to head over to panagraph.com to check out his story. 
in College Hoops, Illinois State University basketball closed out, it closed out its season this year in the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament against Northern Iowa. Though the team held a lead, the Panthers scored 21 points and pulled down 9 rebounds in the last stretch, defeating the Redbirds. Though of course some were disappointed with the way the team ended the season, head coach Dan Moeller said he was pleased with the growth the team experienced this year. Read Jim Benson's full story at Panagraph.com and check out everything uh, he had to say about the Redbird season. Moving over to preps, the Meridian boys basketball team scored their first Central Illinois Conference title since the conference was created in 2014. Herald and Review reporter Matt Flatten wrote this week, Coaches said the team saw incredible improvement over the last year, which they said was more impressive due to the shortened season they saw due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This was an incredible conference win for the team, and players and coaches are excited. To read comments from team members and coaches, check out Flatten's story at herald-review.com. There, you can also find Flatten's feature on Milliken University's number one receiving weapon, Colton Lockwood, a former All-State receiver for Eisenhower High School. The feature details Lockwood's football career and excitement for the upcoming season. Eastern Illinois University is not renewing men's basketball head coach Jay Spoonhauer's contract, the university announced Thursday. Spoonhauer has coached the team for nine seasons, and the Panthers closed out their most recent season with a 9-18 record and a 6-10 in the Ohio Valley Conference. EIU Athletic Director Tom Michael said that while it was a difficult decision, the university decided it's time to take the program in a different direction. Catch the full story at jg-tc.com, where we provide coverage of this season's games and challenges facing the team. And now for some public safety and courts news. On Monday, Governor J.B. Pritzker signed House Bill 3653, a 764-page criminal justice reform bill that includes measures for police accountability and abolishes cash bail in Illinois. The bill passed both chambers of the General Assembly on January 11th, prompting several law enforcement agencies to put out statements criticizing, criticizing the bill and the way it passed during the lame duck session. Kevin Barlow and I worked on a story about local police reaction as soon as it passed, but then in the meantime, we also reached out to local attorneys, including prosecutors, defense, and a law educator, and some other folks to see what they thought about the end of cash bail, which will take effect in 2023. We went into the good, the bad, and the gray areas, uh, so if you'd like to read more about this issue and how Bloomington normal folks are thinking this will play out, be sure to find our report at panagraph.com. Yeah, this is a story that I think we're going to be watching definitely from the statewide perspective, but also the local perspective as implementation goes into effect because the, the, it is now the law and now, and now it has to be implemented and there are going to be some issues that come up as implementation goes through, uh, such as uh, body cameras for uh, police officers. A lot of departments won't be able to afford them if there is no funding for them, and there's currently no funding provided in the bill. So there will be many, many, many issues. There are many issues that were uh, addressed in this in this law, and uh, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out as uh, the years go by. Yeah, one thing I talked about in one of my conversations with an attorney was this is ultimately a law that's going to be carried about by humans and every human is different they're going to interpret things differently every courtroom is going to spell this out differently so yeah it'll definitely be interesting to see in two years when cash bail ends and then in, i believe it's 2025 when uh police will be required to have body cameras so um 
we will definitely be watching this as it plays out. So again, be sure to find our report over at Panagraph.com to read more. In other courts news, Douglas Quivy, a Charleston native, was appointed acting U.S. attorney for the 46th County Federal District this week following the resignation of former U.S. attorney John Milheisner. Quivy, who now resides in Springfield, had been the chief assistant to the U.S. Attorney's District's office since January 2019. He plans to use his role to build relationships with local police agencies and state attorneys, Dave Fopay wrote this week. Read the full story at jg-tc.com, where we detail Quivy's career and his goals for this new position. After a recent string of violence and shootings in Decatur and Springfield, a Decatur reverend organized a panel of community leaders from Springfield and Decatur to raise awareness and collaborate on efforts to put an end to violence. Reverend Courtney Carson put the panel together after a stepnephew and a young man he helped raise were two of the victims of recent violence. Carson hoped that bringing a variety of organizations together could help combine forces and provide better outreach. In February, Decatur Police Chief, the, the Decatur Police Chief and Mayor Julie Moore Wolf issued a joint statement condemning the violence. To read more about this issue, check out Valerie Wells' report at herald-review.com. Firefighters found multiple vehicles on fire as well as the building at Bernie's Automotive, but a damage estimate hasn't been released yet. One person was transported to a local hospital with injuries related to the fire. So for all the details on the fire, be sure to check out Kevin Barlow's report at Panagraph.com. And now for some lighter community news. Um, let's move back to Decatur. Brendan, take it away. Tell us about the art that's going to be in Decatur this month. Very excited. Sounds really cool. Red Donut story. That's exciting. Yeah, my, my awesome colleague Donette Beckett wrote this really neat feature story about a Chicago artist whose painting will be featured in the Ann Lloyd Gallery in downtown Decatur this month. Dan Addington's paintings, which use wax and other pigments, will be featured at the gallery throughout March. What is really cool about this artist, though, is his technique. Addington is known for his technique where he layers the wax over the painting. Addington is also no stranger to Central Illinois. He's a Redbird, graduate of Illinois State University in Normal, where he first started using his technique. To read more about Addington's paintings, visit herald-review.com and check out Donna's story. Wow, so cool. I'm very excited about um, Addington's uh, paintings. They looked really neat in the photos that we had on herald-review.com. As we all know, it's full spring, where where it's a phenomenon in, in Illinois and probably the Midwest, where it kind of warms up to like 50 degrees, and you're like, oh my god, it's spring, and then it gets cold later on, but, <laughs> and we all lose our minds, we all go out in our shorts and our t-shirts and roll our windows down and grill, but it's great, but I'm so excited because um, when it starts to kind of warm up, you just really want to get out of the house and like go to these art galleries and downtown Decatur, downtown Bloomington, normal. I'm just really looking forward to the spring. It feels like it's not like we had a really harsh winter, but I feel like it's just been, I, I think it's just been like one thing after another. So I just really am looking forward to the spring, even though like spring and summer personally are not my favorite seasons. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're wrong for that. Um, uh, winter. Winter is my favorite season, uh, followed up by fall. I really like gloomy and cold weather. 
Frontier is wrong for so many reasons. Anyways, it is very exciting when uh, February and March fool us into thinking that nice weather is going to happen and then psych cold again. Um, but it wasn't that we had an overly like harsh winter. It was just like a lot all at once. Kind of like you said, like we had a huge snowstorm, then another one. A like, blizzard. <laughs> a blizzard, basically. Um, so yeah, it's nice to... Uh, I turned the AC on in my car. I didn't need to. It was 50 degrees outside. <laughs> the air was blowing 70. It was nonsense. But um, summer is my favorite, so I'm very much looking forward to the real spring and the real summer, because winter's hard, man. Winter during a pandemic is hard, man. <laughs> well, I mean, I just can't believe that it's already March, so that that's where I'm at, and I just feel very nostalgic for, the, I guess, the start of the pandemic, where I was working from home, and, like, it was also spring, and sat out on my porch, mm, whatever. <laughs> well, I will second uh, Kelsey Sierra is wrong. <laughs> it, it, winter winter is, is gloomy and depressing. Uh, autumn, fall is my favorite. I love the colors. It's great. But I do like summer, spring and summer. Spring's when my birthday is, so that's that's part of it selfishly. But uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this, this spring and this summer because uh, last spring and summer were kind of lost. It was kind of a lost season because of COVID. And... Uh, you know, we're obviously we still have restrictions in place, but uh, it, it's appearing that uh, it'll be a little bit more open this summer as people get vaccinated, and maybe we'll have a somewhat normal spring and summer. Uh, I'd, I'd love to go, you know, see people, be outside, maybe go to like a music festival or something, go to a baseball game. Uh, you know, knock on wood. That's all I'm saying. Knock, knock on wood. So that's going to do it for us today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast and our reporting, check us out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're also now newly on Google Podcasts. While you're at it, head on over to paintandgraph.com, herald-review.com, and gg-tc.com to look up subscription information and consider supporting hashtag local journalism.